When thinking about the Bible, about faith and religion, do you often find yourself with more questions than answers? Does it seem increasingly difficult to find answers in a world full of contradictory voices? If you are craving answers, our podcast is designed for you. We call our program Craving Answers, Craving God. In our previous programs, we have made the claim that the path to a better understanding of the Bible is to approach it as God's story, a four-part story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. But how do we know that God's story is true? We'll explore these questions and attempt to provide answers on this podcast. I'm Chuck Rathard with Aaron Miller. Aaron is the pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. Hi, Aaron. How hey, are Chuck. you today? Good, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. Aaron, for those who may not have heard our previous programs, what do we need to know about God's story before we consider the question of its truthfulness? Well, um, just to rehash, and of course you can always go back and listen to the previous episodes, uh, God's story is uh, in the Bible. God's story claims to be the story of everything from the very beginning of time uh, to the very end of the story. And it basically tries to tell the story that all worldviews try to tell, but it claims that it's the, the only true one. The story of creation, uh, where did we come from, how did we get here, uh, what's the purpose of life, uh, the story of the fall, what's wrong, what went wrong. Well, I mean, we're all painfully aware that there are bad things in the world. How did that happen? Uh, the story of redemption, how, does the, how do the bad things get taken care of? How does the problem get fixed? And then the fourth chapter is restoration, uh, where are we headed, what's the end game, uh, how, how are all things going to come together in the end? And the Bible claims to be the one legit story. So is it your claim that the Bible contains truth or that the Bible is entirely true? Uh, How reliable is it when it comes to answering the questions about truth? Oh, yeah, I guess if the latter is true, if it's all true, then it does contain truth as well. the question of its reliability, how reliable is it? That's uh, what I guess we can talk about today, you know? Um, so I guess it's two separate questions. Uh, is the Bible true? I- I'm going to go ahead and say yes. I think you would too. I think most Christians would. Uh, but the main question is, uh, how can you know it's true? If it's going to have a claim of truth on other people who don't believe it's true, but who should believe it's true, we're going to have to have an answer to the question. How do you know it's true? How can somebody know it's true? So, yeah, for sure. I, I, I fully believe that it's a true story. So if the Bible is entirely true, then that means it's authoritative. I'm wondering, as you interact with uh, people in your congregation or friends, uh, colleagues, is it, is it true that we believe that the entire Bible is true, or do you think that it's more likely that people are sort of picking and choosing which truths they want to accept from the Bible and rejecting the rest. Yeah, I think that's probably our default mode as humans is to pick and choose. Like we talked about this uh, maybe the first episode, maybe last time, I don't remember, but um, there's so many competing stories 
So even for the most devoutly religious person, whether it's a Christian or Jew, Muslim, fill in the blank, they compete with the stories that the culture is telling around them too. So Christians might study the Bible and claim to believe it, want to believe it even, but you're fighting hard as a Christian against the story of the American dream that we talked about last time, or against the story of the sexual revolution, or just against the story of Western individualism and the authority of the individual. That story is always bumping into the Bible story and getting in the way and confusing things. And it's quite possible sometimes to think that you're, you're, uh, firmly in the story of the Bible and actually it's actually your individualism or uh, the American dream. You see see this a lot with different versions of Christianity that, that um, claim to offer financial security as a part of the belief system or that, you know, if you believe in God, you're going to have a great life. And well, that's actually the American dream. That's not the story of the Bible. So you can see how easy it is for the stories to bump into each other and uh, fight against each other, even when we're not aware that it's happening. So it is a danger. But Christians, they say, and it should be the case, that Christians believe that the story of the Bible is the ultimate story that sits in judgment on all the other stories. Do you think most people are craving answers when they think about these kinds of things? Or do you think that they're, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but blissful in their ignorance. They know it as much as they think they know, need to know, and they're content with that. I think both. I'm, I'm trying to think about me, what I'm like. I think both. I, um, I'm not always philosophical, but, but I generally like want to know what's true or not, you know, whether I'm watching the news or um, you know, he- hearing a friend tell a story or uh, reading my Bible. I kind of want to know what's true or not. And I think most people are like this. Most people want to know truth. They crave answers. However, it's super easy to self-medicate, to get yourself to to find a place. What does that mean, self-medicate? Yeah, to find a place where you don't have to think about important stuff. And and it could actually be medication, right? I mean, it could be, you know, you could take drugs or you could get liquored up. But a lot of times it's, uh, you know, I'm going to go shopping or uh, I'm going to turn the TV on and uh, you know, I'm going to uh, binge watch some Netflix and I'm not, there's no, of course, you know, there's nothing wrong with shopping or uh, binge watching Netflix, but for, for, for most of us, for, let me, let me rephrase that for a lot of us, that can be a way to not think about important issues to, to hide from, to hide from ultimate questions. But, but normally if you don't, if you don't do that, if you wake up in the middle of the night and the Netflix isn't on, or you can't shop or you can't do any of the other tactics that humans do to self-medicate against important questions. You'll find yourself wondering, what does it all mean? What's really going on here? Why am I here? Is there a purpose or not? I think, I think, that's, I think that's universal. It's hard to find a human who won't at some time or other want answers. As a pastor, I know that you deal with people who come to you with various problems, maybe relationship problems or job problems money problems, those kinds of things. Do people come to you just specifically to address biblical problems? They're looking at Scripture and they're reading something that either they don't really understand very well or they don't agree with. They just can't accept that particular claim that the Bible is making. Do people come to you just to talk about Scripture? Yeah. 
a lot of times, and I'd say frequently, it's Christians who want to understand the Bible, want to know the Bible, but don't understand a certain part, or they they do understand a certain part, but they wish they didn't, uh, or they they think they understand a certain part, but they're not sure how it squares with everything else they believe. That sort of question. I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a different category, though. Somebody who comes and talks to me like that. Frequently, high school students um, who are living in a Christian home, uh, older than eleven or twelve, let's say, um, and they've started to to to, to, to reach for their own knowledge. They they want to figure out things for themselves, and they live in a Christian home where more or less they're attending church or they have parents who say we're Christians. And frequently they will come to me. When I talk to them, they'll talk, they'll want to talk about Bible issues, questions of Christianity because they don't believe it, but they're wondering who's right here, me or my parents, or they, they do believe it but they can see for the first time in their lives questions of how this couldn't be true. And I think most of us, everybody has reached that age in their life where, you know, I don't know, for me, it was, you know, fourth or fifth grade. And I just believe what my parents believe, you know, they, they say this is true. And so it's true. I, they root for the Cardinals. I root for the Cardinals. They vote this way. I vote this way. They go to this church. I go to this church. And there's a certain point in time where it's not that you stop rooting for the Cardinals or going to church or voting a different way, but you're, you're questioning, well, wait a minute, why? And so for a lot of those people, you know, high school age students, younger people who are kind of in the tense, they're in that conflict of they live with their parents. And so they're kind of Christians by proxy, but they're exploring if it's really true or not. They'll want to talk about the Bible, but not so much. A little bit of it will be, I want to be a better Christian, but some of it will just be like, what's true? What's real? So a couple of different flavors of that. Don't want to put you on the spot here. Can you give me an example of what a young person, or for that matter, any person might say, Pastor Miller, I I believe a lot of things that you say, but I, I really can't believe this. Oh yeah, for sure. And it's um it's, it's when the, it's when our culture stories bump up against the story of the Bible. I'll give you a huge one. I've probably had this conversation in the past 12 months four or five different times with different high school students. And a couple of times with adults, uh, the question of the the Bible's view of human sexuality, you know, the, so the Bible, as part of the Bible's story, human sexuality is a good gift of God that's designed to bring Him glory, designed to mirror the relationship of the Trinity, and also designed to unite families together. However, our culture tells a different story. The story of the sexual revolution frequently bumps into this story, and it's so pervasive, and the story is so well told by the culture, and it's so pervasive. Did I say pervasive? Persuasive. If I didn't say pervasive, I meant persuasive. It's persuasive and pervasive that students will say, I just don't understand why the Bible will say sex outside of marriage is wrong, or I don't understand why the Bible says this version of sexuality is wrong. I just don't get it. And what's happened is, is that there are two, the two stories that, you know, they believe Christianity, that's one story, but also the story of the sexual revolution with its own version of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration is bumping into it and pushing on it, and they don't know what to make of that. So that's a frequent topic. So you have people who just don't accept certain truth claims that the Bible makes, 
and you're left with some kind of a challenge. What are you, are, are you trying to change their minds? Are you trying to do education? Yeah. Um, you're trying to move them from point A to point B. How do you attempt that? Well, I mean, usually I'm trying to just say, look at the story that you're believing in, the story of the sexual revolution, just to stick with this story. And does it actually, what's restoration there? And do you think that free sex is going to bring about the happiness and fulfillment that it promises? And over the course of human history, this is, uh, this is, been proven to be untrue so many times by, by individuals, by cultures at large, that the amount of sex that people are having does not correspond at all to psychological fulfillment. However, the story of the Bible promises fulfillment. It gives a place for sex inside the story, but sex is not the main part of the story. The main part of the story is this God who's become flesh to rescue our bodies, certainly, but our souls, our communities, our whole planet, our whole universe. Now, which of these stories, let's think about which of these stories actually can pay out what it promises to pay out. Now, we'll leave it up for grabs right now, whether or not Christianity can actually do this, whether or not being joined to Jesus can actually bring about fulfillment. Let's leave that aside for the moment, I would say to this person. But let's just think about human sexuality. Will that bring fulfillment? Or instead, is that best left as a, a great and wonderful part of God's creation, but apart, not the salvation? And what I want to do, what I'm trying to do with a person who, who asked me this question, is to put these two stories side by side. It could be the American dream story or individualism and just say, does this one accomplish? Which story can accomplish what it claims to accomplish? Which story can actually bring you salvation, to use a, a religious word, or fulfillment? or ultimate happiness, which one can actually pay that out, pay that promise out? And I, I firmly believe that if you go throughout human history, I'm not talking about just Christians, I'm talking about anybody who has any sort of self-awareness at all, we'll see that the promises made by all the alternative stories never pay out. They never pay out. Not that they aren't good. You know, money is good. Property is good. Sex is good. Uh, shopping is good. Becoming good at golf is good. All these things are good. Family is good. Um, but they actually can't fulfill us. They can't make us happy. People have tried. People are still desperately trying. And it never actually quite works. So why not, why not try out this story over here, I might say. Why, why not think about this story? You, you can Sexuality will be a part of it. Money will be a part of it. Property. Anything that you want can be a part of it. But it has to fit in. If, it, if you want to actually experience fulfillment. It has to fit into God's story. I think it's true that maybe a generation or two ago, the what we would call the Judeo-Christian ethic was central to American culture. It didn't mean that uh, everybody in America was holy, but the understanding of right and wrong, what was true and what was false, was largely connected to the Judeo-Christian ethic. Yeah. It seems like in the last generation, a good deal of that has eroded for sure. so that people who some years ago might have more or less accepted the truth claims of the Bible are maybe now questioning it anew or for the first time, yeah. maybe even going so far as to reject some of those things that they 
had uh, believed to be true in the past. So has your job gotten harder? Um, well, I don't, I don't know. I've always lived in the postmodern world. I don't know. I, I heard somebody, uh, well, I actually read something that somebody recently wrote where they said uh, 75 years ago, you could tell a girl, you could tell a teenage girl, be a good girl, and she would know what you meant. And now that statement is completely meaningless. I've always lived in a world where that statement is completely meaningless. So I don't know what it's like to be in a world where people just assume that right and wrong are legit categories. That's no longer the case. We talked about postmodernism last time. One of the results of killing off God and one of the results of killing off science, too, is that there is no more right or wrong except for what I decide for myself is right or wrong. And so you live in a world where uh, you know, you can't talk in terms of here's what's right, here's what's wrong. Instead, I think, and this is why I think this approach is vastly superior to anything we have, any way that we could do apologetics as Christians now, the approach of story I'm talking about, is that instead of framing it in terms of here's a list of rules that you have to agree to or obey, to frame it in terms of story, that, that what, what God is doing here is not, you know, the question, the question here is, which story you're going to subscribe to and how is that story going to end up? Sometimes we use the phrase, the real world. And when we use that phrase, we mean to identify things that we know are true. This is the way the world works. Jump off a building. You're going to hit the ground. Yeah. And then when we introduce thinking about the Bible into that context, some of it is easily adaptable. Some of it is not. It used to be that we would say things like, well, you know, God works in mysterious ways, meaning I don't get it, but, right. but I accept it or I believe it. But I hear you saying that that doesn't work anymore. That kind of attitude we might have described as abstract. Well, it's just over my head. I, it's too con- uh, uh, difficult to think about. Is the story of God abstract compared to the other stories that you've talked about, which we tend to identify as real? Is God's story as real as those stories? Uh, oh, yeah. This is, that's a great question, Chuck. This is one of the selling points of the story of God is that it actually is the real story. It's the one that actually connects with reality in ways that other stories don't see. Other, all other stories choose an element of existence and elevate it to the point of worship, whether it's the American dream with money or individualism with the rights of the individual, et cetera. You know, we talked about those last time. So I'll just give you a real quick example. And this is one of the appeals of the Christian story is that it actually makes contact with all points of reality. If you look at the Eastern religions, and I teach the Eastern religions at our local community college, um, if you look at the Eastern religions, one of the main things they have in common is a denial of the reality of the physical world. The only reality, the ultimate reality is, you know, Brahman, for instance, uh, in Hinduism, is that this, this great, think about the Star, Star Wars. It's like the, the, the force. That's the ultimate reality. All of our other physical, the physical aspects of our life, our bodies, our relationships, those are all temporary. And the job of, of religion, philosophy in the East is to escape the physical world to get to the real thing, spirituality. Well, now, in the West right now, it's actually it's exactly the opposite. Spiritual things are unreal. 
And all there is in, you know, in Western secular materialism, all there is is the physical world. That's all that exists. And even emotions, you, you will hear philosophers and scientists talk about this now, emotions, uh, relationships, uh, love for your kids, that's just a biological quirk that for whatever reason we've been tricked into thinking is a real emotion, but it's actually just your neurons firing and your endorphins flowing. That all there actually is is physicality. Okay, so here's two worldviews. One affirms physicality and denies spirituality, Western secularism. One affirms spirituality but denies physicality. That's Eastern, that's Eastern philosophy. And what you have in Christianity is a, 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 a firm commitment to both, which all of us intuitively understand. It's, if you try to convince yourself as a Western secularist that your love for your kids is just an actual, it's not, it doesn't really exist. It's actually just a biological quirk. It's one machine having some random biological, um, uh, you know, phenomenon as they relate to another machine. You will, you can't, you can't maintain that because intuitively, you know, that we are more than physical. But if you try to say that all we are are spiritual, and this isn't really a Western problem because we're Westerners, right? If you try to say along with the Eastern philosophies and religions that we are nothing except for spirit, you know, the, 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 the old police song, we're spirits in a material world. If you try to affirm that, it'd be extremely hard to do that because you realize I have hunger. I have love for my kids. I have all these physical things that are happening. And what you get with the story of the Bible is that God is a spirit. Ultimate reality is a spirit. God is also physical. He became human. Ultimate reality is also physical. The, the physical world that he created with its desires and its pleasures and its pains and beautiful sunsets and scab knees, these are all real as well. Christianity as a story is the only one, Western philosophy, Eastern philosophy, Christianity is the only one that actually grapples with all of reality. It doesn't pick and choose which one is going to make most important, but it grapples with all of reality. That's, this is one of the big draws of telling the Christian story is that whatever, you know, you can try to put part of your life aside and squash it down and act like it's not important because you've elevated some other part of your life. You know, but God, but people do this. People will devote themselves to their work and they'll squash down relationships because in the American dream, it's actually the work that's the most important. That's where you get your identity. That's where you get your fulfillment. That's redemption is to, you know, success at work and financial security. And what the Bible will affirm is that success at work, financial security, money, all super important. However, relationship, also super important. And you can't deny both of those because God created both of those. And so to your question, which is a perfect question, is what's really real? Is Christianity more real? I think that the answer, at least for me, and if anybody would test this out, I think they would find it to be the case. Christianity is the ultimate real. So you're making two claims here, if I hear you correctly. One is that the Bible is entirely true and that it is entirely real. Yes. For the person who is listening to us who has just never really taken those thoughts that far, may like what he or she is hearing or may not like it, um, how do you go from a place that contains doubts or skepticism? I'm not so sure it's entirely real. I'm not so sure it's entirely true. How do you move from that spot to the spot that you have described 
entirely true, entirely real. Is that a an intellectual process? Is that just a matter of going to class and yeah. having a good teacher, or is it bigger than that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's bigger than that. It's it's better than that. Um, first, you have to bring me back to this that question in just a second, Chuck. Uh, first, entirely true and entirely real. This is not popular for postmoderns to think because, again, since there is no God in the center of the room, we like to imagine that we are our own gods and authorities. For me, though, and I think we all crave this, reality and truth should be the same thing. Reality and truth should be the same thing. If it's real, it's true. And I mean really out there, not real in the postmodern sense where I decide it's real for me, but real, you know, do I have a body? Do I have a soul? If those things are there, then it's true. So those things are, are uh, coterminous. Those things are you know, identical. If it's real, we should believe in it as true. If it's true, it needs to be real. It can't be, I can't make up my own truth if it's going to be really real. So, okay, so how do you move from that? And, that, and this is the question that we brought up at the, at the very beginning. I think you brought it up, the question of um, how do you know? How do you know that this is true? How do you move from well, you know, the way, that, the way that you put it, how do you move from not being sure, wanting to test it out, to knowing it's true? So this is the great question of the Enlightenment. I hate to, this is going to get a little pedantic here, and I feel bad about that. I hope this isn't boring, but we, for the past 400 years in the West, have been afflicted with a disease, an epistemological disease. The word epistemology is a big fancy word. I probably shouldn't even use it, but it's the... It's the branch of philosophy that's devoted to the question of how can you know stuff? How do we know things? How can you know something's true? That's epistemology. Well, since uh, Descartes in the 1600s, we've in the West have been afflicted with, like I said, an epistemological disease. Descartes thought that he established this as a fact. We all went along with it in the West that knowledge equals provability. You can't know something until it's proven. And you'll hear people talk this way about, not about everything, but about stuff they want to, to use it for. So the question of God, like if I say, I know that God is real, somebody will say, how do you know God is real? And what they're really asking is, can you prove it? How can you prove that God is real? And we all sort of want that. Even you know, Christians feel this burden to prove the Bible is true. And you can go to, the, you know, you can go to Books a Million or Barnes & Noble and find scads of Christian books that you know, the 25 evidences that the word of God is true and that stuff. For, for, my, for my money, that's, I mean, that, might, that might be fun to read. It might be helpful, I guess, in a certain sense, but it's really missing the point. Real knowledge, how can we know the Bible is true? It's not a question of proof because real knowledge is never about proof. And, and the, the, the Bible does it best. The, the, the Enlightenment West talks about knowledge as information that can be proven or disproven. The Bible talks about knowledge as experience. And this is the way we actually all really, when we're not, we're not trying to be philosophical, we all think of knowledge as experience. Knowledge is mess, much less like uh, you know, differential uh, formulas and equations, algebra, and I shouldn't even start talking about math because I don't know anything about it. It's much more experiential. It's much more like uh, driving a stick shift. If I said, you know, do you know how to drive a stick shift? People wouldn't say, well, I know the five rules. I, I know and believe the five rules for driving a stick shift. No, what I'm actually asking is, can you sit inside a stick shift and make it go? 
in a reasonable way. More like riding a bike, right? It's not, you don't know how to ride a bike as a fact. I can't prove to you about, I, I can't prove to you riding a bike, but I know how to ride a bike. Uh, playing a musical instrument is like this. Even tying your shoes. Tying your shoes is a skill. It's something that you do. And this is why I just referenced the Bible. The, the most common, so, you know, some of you who are Christians will know this. Uh, the most common Hebrew idiom for making love uh, in, um, in the Old Testament, they, making love is not an idiom they have. It's to know. So and so, uh, you know, this couple knew each other. Adam knew his wife, Eve. That's right, yeah. It's so knowledge is an experience that you have. And so, so I would say it this way. If somebody says to me, how can you know the Bible is true? This is my number one answer. I always say, how do you know your mom loves you? You can't prove it. If you said to me, well, yeah, I can. I've got five different reasons why my mom loves me. She used to make food for me all the time. She always bought clothes for me. I would say, okay, that's pretty good evidence. You know, she's always nice to you. However, you can't prove it though, because maybe, just maybe your mom doesn't love you, but she knows that there's this social expectation that moms do nice stuff for their kids that she doesn't want to violate because she doesn't want to get mocked in public. Maybe she knows that you're her one shot at social security. She does not want to end up in a dirty nursing home someday. And she knows that if she's nice to you now, there's less chance that you're going to stick her in that dirty nursing home. Now, you would say to me, no, that's not the case. I know my mom loves me. And I would say, okay, but you can't prove it. And that's my point is I, I, even though you can't prove it, I affirm with you that your mom loves you. I affirm. I, I know that my mom loves me even though I can't prove it. How do I know it? Because I've spent years with the woman. I've talked to her. She's been there when I've been happy. She's been there when I've been sad. She's consistent. It's not evidence. Again, it doesn't prove anything. But just this built-up relationship over time, I have lived inside the story of my family to where I know that story inside and out, and I know it's true. Now, that's what I would urge anybody who's interested in ultimate reality, who really is craving answers to do, is to get inside the story of the Bible and live inside of it. Can I prove to you that God exists? No, because all the best things in life can't be proven. What I can do, though, is say, Climb inside this story and learn it from the inside out. Know it by experiencing it, not by me proving it to you. You know, come and see. This is what Andrew said to his uh, brother Peter, right? When Peter said, is that guy really the Messiah? How can I know that you're right, that he's the Messiah? Andrew doesn't say, well, let me give you three reasons to prove it. Well, let me give you, uh, you know, this, uh, th this blog post, which gives, you know, uh, five reasons why Jesus is Nazareth the Messiah. Instead, he just says, come and see. Come hang out with this guy. And, and, and learn inside the story. For a person who is generally receives what you're saying, but is just really hung up on one difficulty, one life experiential difficulty, and doesn't understand why he or she has to endure it, doesn't understand why it's a problem, doesn't understand how to overcome it, has prayed and prayed and prayed and just doesn't seem to get anywhere and feels pretty much at the end of his or her rope. They like what you're saying, but their experience is, you know, I've, I've taken this to God and I got nothing. What do you say to that person? Well, I say it, it depends on what you answer, what you want. You, you know, if you want answers, you can take your hard life experiences to God. And if you want, I'm, I want it too. I want to print out. 
I, I want when I'm struggling with stuff, uh, you know, relational brokenness, bad health, losing people that I love. I want to go to God and say, what's going on? Why are you doing this? And to get a printout saying, here's why I'm doing it. That's not going to be forthcoming, typically speaking, because again, we're not talking, you know, God's not a magical vending machine who's going to give us answers just because we put in the prayer quarters. Instead, it's all about the story to keep going back to that. The struggles that we have in life, you know, relational abandonment, financial struggles, health issues, uh, mental and, and social, you know, social, psychological health. All these are a part of the story too. This is not something that, you know, the, the story is, there's a fall in the story. The fall is that things are broken. Now, the question is, which story best explains your struggles? Is it that you don't have enough money? That's the American dream solution to the fall is to get more money. Is it that you don't have enough individual power and freedom? Is it that you don't have enough sex? Is it that you not, don't have enough friends? Is it that um, uh, the, the friends that you have have left or have died? The, the, the solution to those things, all alternative stories. Instead, the story of the Bible says this. Your problem is that you live in a broken world. The brokenness of the world is being addressed by God. A God who becomes human, writes himself into the story in order to experience whatever relational brokenness you're experiencing, he experiences. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. He knows what it's like to be beat up. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to lose friends. He knows what it's like to lose a home. He knows what it's like to be lynched for a crime he didn't commit. He knows all of this. And only, so look, here, here's the deal. The American dream, if, if your problem is financial problems, and you say, okay, I'm really struggling with financial problems. I've prayed to God, and I've asked him for help, and I'm not getting anything. So now I'm just going to have to turn to the American dream. I'm just going to have to work harder. I'm going to have to uh, scrimp and save or whatever, and then I'll be happy. I'll just say that the American dream can never solve that problem. There's no amount of money that anybody can have or financial security that anybody can have that can actually give them what they're actually looking for, which is peace of mind, satisfaction, knowing that they're right with the world and with their relationships and with God. The Christian story can offer that, though. The Christian story can offer, because Jesus died on the cross, all of our problems are actually a chapter in the story, too. His story. Our problems are his problems. And he's experienced them right along with us and promises us that he's fixing those things. Uh, one last question. When it comes to a situation where somebody is snagged or hung up on some kind of problem or issue, and they turn to the American dream or any of these other stories for some kind of resolution, those stories offer suggestions on what I would call an intellectual plane. Somebody has already been through it. Somebody is thinking it right. through. Here's my advice for you. but. The scripture, and I'm looking at Hebrews 4 here, where it says, for the word of God, or we might say the story of God, yeah. is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, etc. going on to talk yeah. about discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's good. Is that reality, that biblical reality, how does that affect the transfer of this knowledge, this biblical knowledge, as opposed to the 
the knowledge that comes from the stories, uh, uh, the other stories, the worldly stories that you've talked about. Yeah. So the, the biblical story is living and active and it does stuff. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. sword. The stories that we have on offer don't do stuff. They're not living and active. At best, they're advice. At worst, they're guilt-inducing standards that we can never reach. You know, so the American dream, is it living and active? No, it tells you you need to work hard. You need to be financially successful. To be, it's, it's, telling, it's advice. It's telling you what to do in order to be successful. That's a great verse, Chuck, because I'm glad you read that because the word of God, the biblical story actually does it. It includes us in its story and anything that needs to be done to make life successful, to, make, to, to actually bring about redemption and restoration, it does itself. Jesus does itself, and it doesn't say, okay, so you're, you know, you're mourning the loss of this loved one, or you're stressed out because you might lose your job. Well, here's what you need to do. It says, all the stress, all the mourning, it's already been swallowed up at the cross, and now you can stress and you can mourn. That's appropriate to living in a fallen world, but know that it's been swallowed up by this story, and so good things are coming. Your identity doesn't have to be, I have to have this job and I'm so stressed that I'm going to lose it, or I have to have financial standing, or I have to have physical pleasure, or I have to have good health, or whatever it is, that's already been taken care of. All of those problems have already been swallowed up at the cross, and now we're headed for restoration. And it's guaranteed that all the problems that we're experiencing are going to be fixed and made whole again, Not not because we've received some sort of listicle online about five things to do when you're mourning to cheer up, because God's already d- decided to defeat mourning, to defeat any, any sickness or evil that we can think about. The, all these other stories are trying to address. You know, the sexual revolution is trying to address loneliness, disconnection. The American dream is trying to address poverty. The biblical, they can't do it, but the biblical story promises that if you give your poverty, if you give your loneliness over to this story, you can be fulfilled. So we started with the assertion that the Bible's story is true, maybe even the only really completely true story. Completely, yeah. Do you think we made that case in our conversation today or that we need to further explore that? Oh, I don't know. I, I never know if I'm actually making the case for anything or not, you know. Uh, I hope so. I mean, uh, um, I, hope, I, I hope we made the case. And if anybody has any questions, certainly, you know, we're available here, uh, you know, to reach out to. Um, there's a, a email addresses on the church website, and if anybody has any questions, they're uh, free to ask. But and, and I would just encourage you know if this is if there's anything about what Chuck and I have been saying today that connects with anybody out there, and you think okay, I might be interested in you probably it's probably less important that you get a hold of us, and probably more more important that you actually pick up the story itself. And start to immerse yourself in it. Become a character. You know, open the Bible and just start reading and become a character in the story for your own. That's where you'll find the ultimate answers to these questions that you want answers to. All right, sir. Look forward to our next conversation. Yeah, me too. Thanks for listening to our Craving Answers, Craving God podcast with Pastor Aaron Miller, pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. If you have a topic or a question for Pastor Miller, Please go to our website at stjamesglencarbon.org and click Contact Us. You'll be able to leave a message there. Thanks for listening.